the thief on the cross. I wanted to circle back and uh, begin where we ended last Sunday. Uh, so Pastor uh, Alistair Begg is making this profound and powerful point that we are not saved because of our doctor, doctrinal knowledge. We are not saved because of our, our great theological understanding. Why are you here? On what basis are you here? The man on the middle cross said that I could come. In faith, the thief asked Jesus, remember me in par paradise. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That is beautiful. And praise God for this salvation that is so great that it can save people who are, are not deserving of it. In fact, the thief on the cross is undeserving of it. And that is good news for you and for me. It's beautiful. But I want to be sure this morning that we are not hearing something that Alistair Begg is not saying. He is not saying that theology is unimportant. He's not saying that our understanding of doctrines, and he threw out two, justification by faith and, and the authority of Scripture, he's not saying that our understanding of theology is unimportant. No, these and other doctrinal truths are vitally important to us. They don't save us. Theology doesn't save us, per se. But the psalmist said, it is a, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto our path. God has given us this light so that we might walk our understanding of, of what the Word says and, and what God has taught us. I'm introducing this final sermon that way because we are coming to uh, a challenging passage. We're, coming, we're ending our sermon series in Mark today. We've been in Mark for over a year now, and we are coming to the last 12 verses of Mark, which are the most contested verses in the entire New Testament. Even the most conservative of theologians and scholars, people like James MacArthur, are in agreement that these additional verses were not part of Mark's original manuscript but they were added at a later time. That's a really big deal. Because one of our doctrines, the one that Alistair Begg mentions, the authority of Scripture, we believe that the Scripture is the inspired Word of God, the Scripture in the original manuscripts. So if this Scripture, if these last 12 verses were not part of Mark's original Gospel, but added at a later time, that raises questions. Are they inspired? Are they the inspired of weight of, uh, word of God? Do they carry the same weight of authority as the rest of Scripture? Well, scholars agree that these verses were added, and so that raises the question, why? Why would a scribe add these verses to the gospel? Most likely it's because where Mark ended verse 8 was a very unsatisfying ending. They read that and they said this story is not concluded. It's not like Mark finished the story. He just stopped. Remember verse 8? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's where Mark ends his gospel. And 
scribes thought we need to kind of clean that up a little bit. We've got to resolve the story. The story that we have in the Bible, verses 9 through 20, is one alternative ending. There are many others. Uh, there's lots of manuscripts where different endings were proposed for Mark. This is the one that has been included. Now, I, I know to make a claim uh, that this was not part of the original manuscript, verses 9 through 20, is a bold claim. Uh, we are typically of the crowd that you know, likes to say the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Uh, so what I'm saying today is, is a bold claim, but I think there's reason for it. There is evidence, external evidence. There's internal evidence. Externally, if you have a Bible, especially if it's a study Bible, you will see a line between eight, verse 8 and verse 9. The only Bibles that don't have that are King James Bibles because they were translated not on the original manuscripts, but on later manuscripts. You'll see a line, you'll see a study note that says all of our most reliable manuscripts of Mark, the earliest most reliable manuscripts, they all end at verse 8. We have the testimony of early church fathers. In the 4th century, there were two church historians named Eusebius and Jerome. They knew about the alternative endings, and they wrote that all the ancient manuscripts end at verse 8. Alternative endings start showing up. There, there's many of them. Because we have so many manuscripts, it's one of the things that makes the Bible unique. We have so many early manuscripts. And because we have so many, when things show up that are different, they stand out. This stands out from the, the original. So there's external evidence. There's internal evidence. As we read verses 9 to 20 today, we're going to see that the transition from verse 8 to 9 is extremely awkward. After having referenced Mary Magdalene three different times, she's inter being introduced like she's a brand new character for the first time. There's 18 words in these last 12 verses that Mark never uses. It's clear that these are being written with someone with a, a different vocabulary toolbox. The title Lord Jesus is used in these final verses that are never used elsewhere in the gospel. So we've got external evidence, we've got internal evidence that indicates these verses were not part of the original manuscripts, but they were added later. Now, that does not mean that these verses are not true. Uh, as we read it, what we're going to see is that, that this material was drawn from the other Gospels. There's material that's included in Mark that's drawn from Matthew, that's drawn from Luke, that's drawn from John. So we're not saying it's not true, but we are questioning, does this carry the same weight of inspiration? So this morning, I hope to do two things in our time together. First, we are going to attend to these final verses. John MacArthur wrote this, in spite of all the considerations of the, unlikely, of the likely unreliability of this section, it's possible to be wrong on this issue. And thus, it's good to consider the meaning of the passage. So we're going to do that today. We're going to consider the meaning of the last verses. But secondly, I want to conclude the, the sermon and conclude the entire series by making the point as to why verse 8 is a perfect place for this gospel to end. So join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Father God, we thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word. 
We pray that you would do that today. I ask that you would guard my tongue, that I wouldn't say anything in error. And I pray that you would give us all ears to hear your voice and hearts that are eager to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to back up one verse to verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And this is where all of the oldest, most reliable manuscripts conclude. Later, alternative endings show up. Verses 9 through 20 is one of them. Verse 9. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So I'm going to pause here for a second. While this is disjointed from the previous narrative, everything in these verses is substantiated by the other Gospels. There is nothing irregular, there is nothing inconsistent in anything that we've read. This may not have been in Mark's original manuscript. It may not carry the same weight of inspiration, but it does appear to be a faithful summary of what's recorded elsewhere in Matthew's account, in Luke's account, and in John's account. But if this was all we had to go on, if, this, if Mark's gospel was all we had to go on, and, and we read these verses, I see three important takeaways for us. Number one, the empty tomb was not empty because somebody stole Jesus' body. It's not empty because somebody uh, took Jesus' body, moved his body. It's empty because Jesus had indeed risen from the dead just as he promised he would. And he appeared multiple times to multiple people in his resurrected self. This appearance of the risen Jesus to a group of men who were cowering in fear is one of the only ways you explain how those same men suddenly have this courage to proclaim the gospel knowing that it's likely to get them killed. It's because they've witnessed the risen Lord. Number two, the resurrection of Jesus is a claim that demands a response. We can always choose to be ambivalent. That's always an option. You can be ambivalent about anything, but it's not a reasonable choice. Reject it. Accept it. But don't be ambivalent about it. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then I would say, eat, drink, and be merry, just as is written in Ecclesiastes. I would say, discard all of religion. Don't waste any more time with it, because it's empty. It's meaningless if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Instead, 
try and squeeze out every ounce of pleasure and joy and happiness of this life that you can while you're living it, because tomorrow you die if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But if, in fact, Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. The resurrection vindicates Jesus as the Son of God. He is who he says he is. Jesus said, destroy this temple, speaking about his body, and I will raise it again in three days. And sure enough, that's exactly what he did. The resurrection demands that we lean in, that we pay close attention to what Jesus did, to what he said, because his actions and words are the very actions and words of God. He is not like a teacher among teachers. He is not a philosopher among philosophers. He's not the most moral of moral men. He is one of a kind. He is Lord of lords. His actions, his words, the very actions and words of God. Therefore, whoever has ears, let them hear. Whoever has eyes, let them see. The resurrection of Jesus demands that we submit to Christ as Lord. He is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your obedience. He is worthy of your surrender. The resurrection of Jesus is a life-changing, life-reorienting event. It means that living for today, that, that philosophy I just mentioned earlier about trying to suck out all the pleasure of this moment because tomorrow we die, it means that is complete foolishness because this life is not all there is. If those of you who are watching The Chosen, you see the introduction to the, the video every week and the fish are swimming in one direction, and then one by one, a few of them change color and reverse direction. That's, the, that's what we do with the resurrection. When Jesus gets a hold of us, it's a life-altering event. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus said this to Martha on the occasion of her brother Lazarus' death. And then he asked Martha a very pointed question. Do you believe this? I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. Do you believe this? That's a question that we all must answer. That is not a question to be ambivalent before. To, to not answer that question is to answer it negatively. Finally, these verses from Mark indicate that we who have come to know the risen Lord have an obligation, a commission to share that good news with others, to go and proclaim that good news. So continuing on, verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world, preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere 
And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So remember Luke, when he wrote his gospel, he followed that up with a second volume that we call Acts. 28 chapters detailing the story of the apostles going out, being sent out by Jesus. Mark has just summed up all of that. This has all just been summed up in just a few verses. The disciples went out. Yes, they spoke in tongues when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They performed acts of healing through the laying on of hands. They cast out demons. On the island of Malta, Paul was gathering firewood. He stuck his hand into the firewood, and a viper grabbed, hand, uh, grabbed his hand. But he didn't suffer any ill effects. The only sign mentioned in this list that there is no biblical example of is drinking deadly poison. And so I don't recommend that you try it. That was funny. You should have laughed harder. <laughs> Some have wildly distorted these verses so as to make the handling of snakes or drinking poison some kind of faith litmus test. Others have done the same regarding the other signs. If you don't speak in tongues or have the gift of healing, you must not have genuine faith. I, I need to freely confess for myself that I am out of my depth with these verses. I believe in the spiritual gifts. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to do everything listed there. I think God still heals. I think we are still called to the ministry of setting people free, which includes casting out demons. I personally don't have a lot of experience with these things, but I don't want to be closed-minded to the possibility that God still works in this way. And truthfully, I hunger for it more and more. So we have arrived at the end, and now I want to circle back to verse 8. And make the case that there is no better place than verse 8 for this gospel to conclude. Let's look at the verse again. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The Greek words for those, those words, trembling and bewildered and afraid, are there. Trembling is traumas. You recognize the word traumatic. From that, bewildered, ecstasis, you recognize the word ecstasy, and afraid, phobeto, phobia. The women who have just been confronted by an angel who announced that Jesus had risen from the dead had the most traumatic, ecstatic, wonderful, amazing, frightening experience of their life. This is classic Mark. All throughout his gospel, we have now read the entire gospel, all throughout the gospel, every time people interact with Jesus, he writes that they, they respond in similar ways. They're amazed. They're frightened. They're astonished. They tremble. They're bewildered. Nobody ever yawned when they met Jesus. The response that people had to Jesus is such a central part of this gospel that if we're to rename the gospel, if we're not going to call it the, the gospel according to Mark, one pastor said we ought to title this The Amazing Jesus. 
Mark is all about the amazing Jesus. So we're going to close by just taking a quick spin through those verses. Chapter 1, verse 22, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and the people were amazed at his teaching. And then he casts out a demon, verse 27, and they said, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. Chapter 2, verse 12, Jesus heals a paralytic. He says to the paralyzed person, stand up, take your mat, and go home. And when he got up and walked out, everyone was amazed. And they said, we've never seen anything like this. Chapter 4, verse 41, Jesus is in a boat with his disciples, and a storm comes up that's threatening to swamp the boat. Jesus is sleeping. The panicked disciples wake him up, and he commands the storm, quiet, be still. And everything becomes calm, and the disciples were terrified. And they asked, who is this? Jesus, chapter 5, verse 15, Jesus casts demons out of a man, and he sends the demons into pigs that run off the cliff. This causes a disturbance in the community, and the people all come out to find this terribly demon-possessed man in his right mind, and they're afraid. And they said to Jesus, please leave our region. Chapter 5, verse 33, a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was healed. Jesus stopped and looked at her. She fell at his feet, trembling with fear. Chapter 5, verse 42, Jairus' daughter died. Jesus took her by the hand and said, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately she stood up and walked around and everyone was completely astonished. Chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus walked on the water out to his disciples who were in a boat. Take courage, he said. It is I. Don't be afraid. And they were completely amazed. Chapter 9, verse 6, Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus' appearance transfigured before them. Peter didn't know what to say. He was so frightened. And then verse 15, when Jesus came down the Mount of Transfiguration, as soon as all the people saw him, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Chapter 10, verse 24, Jesus told a rich man how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus was walking with his disciples with a large crowd. The disciples were astonished by him. The crowds were afraid. Chapter 11, verse 18, chief priests looked for a way to kill Jesus, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed by him. Chapter 12, verse 17, the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus by asking whether they should pay taxes to Caesar. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God, he said. And the Pharisees were amazed at him. Chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus was silent before Pilate, refusing to answer his questions, and Pilate was, you guessed it, amazed. And so we come to chapter 16, the end of the gospel. Is it any wonder that Mark concludes with an angel announcing to the women that Jesus is risen? 
He's not here, and they are amazed, astonished, trembling, bewildered, and afraid. Meeting Jesus, what we've learned in the Gospel of Mark, meeting Jesus is a traumatic event. It's a traumatic event. Who is this? You can't help but ask that question. Who is this? If you're paying attention, who is this? And what is this teaching? We've never seen anything like this. This is amazing. This is astonishing. This is terrifying. This is bewildering. And one of the things that I noticed as we reviewed that, that list is that when people meet Jesus and they're amazed and bewildered and terrified and astonished, they react in one of two ways. Some people choose to reject Jesus. I mean, the people who, who saw the demoniac in his right mind, they're terrified, and then they turn to Jesus and they say, leave. Leave this region. The Pharisees, they're amazed by him. And they decide, let's kill him. So some people decide we need to have nothing to do with him, or, or worse, get rid of him, kill him. And yet there's others who are amazed and astonished and terrified and bewildered, and yet they're drawn to him, worship him, submit to him, praise him. Mark ends his gospel like a uh, 15-year-old going through driver's ed who comes up to a stoplight and slams on the brakes at the last minute. It's meant to like shake us readers out of our, our sleep. Like, wake up. The resurrection is a traumatic event with a life-altering claim. He has risen. That changes everything. He has risen. He is who he says he is. The Son of God. Ambivalence in the face of the resurrection is not an option. So, reject him. Submit to him, but don't yawn. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of this gospel. We thank you for the gift of you choosing to make yourself known to us through your word. And Lord, uh, we pray that uh, we would not be counted among those who are ambivalent and we would not be counted among those who choose to reject you. But Lord, all of our questions and all of our wonder would lead us to follow you more closely. Therefore, we proclaim you are the Son of God, the risen Son of God. We love you and we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.